0: Welcome back to Season 1, Episode 5 of Dialogue Dilemmas. I'm your podcast host, Megan Fisher, and I have a guest here with me today, Lauren Brown, who I originally met through a nonviolent communication program in 2012. Uh, Lauren Brown is a mental health clinician uh, currently, but I've always known her as someone who is interested in dialogue and communication, understanding different perspectives, and getting to the heart of issues and looking for win-win solutions which is why I wanted to have her on the podcast today. Uh, Lauren, would you like to say anything else about yourself and also what uh, your interest is more uh, in dialogue and specifically political dialogue?
1: Hi, yeah, thanks. Um, well, as far as myself, I suppose um, the application of nonviolent communication is a way to live through the values that I have of nonviolence and, as Megan said, win win. It's been a, an interest forever, I think, and um, now I'm starting to bring it more into my work as well as my personal life. Um, and dialogue to me is usually a forum that is more likely to bring about those results win win if both people's voices are included since that's kind of the the most general meaning of that and with a lot of what i'm experiencing these days with communication seems to be more um oppositional monologues almost where people are trying to just force their point of view on the other person or otherwise affect them in a way that they're not really cooperating with so I guess at this point, I'm just longing for more shared interest in dialogue, you know, in all areas of life that people communicate.
0: Yeah, I hear that. And that actually, honestly, just can go really deep for me and connect to some real grief about um, how difficult it seems to be, um, how much trouble people seem to have being heard Mm -hmm. uh, by each other. Or setting ourselves up for success and being understood by people with different views. Um, so it's it's a lot. I I also can feel really kind of overwhelmed by it sometimes. Um, to try to break it down into a slightly smaller chunk and look at this in different um, different ways uh, in kind of like specific aspects of dialogue and communication. I mean, the whole podcast is focused on that, but right now I've been, if you've been following along, you know that we've been going into this one uh, article by Maria Yarimovic and Daniel Bartal. I apologize if my pronunciation is not up to snuff um, about emotions in societies experiencing intractable conflict, specifically Mm. fear and hope. So Mm. if you listened, uh, anyone listening, if you caught parts one and two, that was about fear and hope respectively, but more on the individual level. And today we are going to be talking about something called collective emotional orientation. Before I get into how the researchers define that concept, I'm wondering, Lauren, if you have any thoughts on like just what that phrase brings to mind
1: for you. Collective emotional orientation. Hmm. That's, um... I guess my first thought is sort of the general tendency of a certain culture or group and, um, the emotions that tend to be displayed the most, gravitated towards the most, that characterize, um, the tone of people's attitude or way of communicating or treating each other. So, um... You know, if it's a fearful orientation, people are going to be a lot more into security and caution as opposed to, um, I don't know, a more upbeat orientation where there might be more expressiveness and um, exchange of kind of affection or something. So that's kind of general thoughts that come up. Yeah, it's kind of funny because
0: we actually haven't even really talked yet about what these researchers define collective emotional orientation as but that's seems really similar to my impression of what they're saying mm-hmm. um i'll go more into it in a moment but i guess before doing that i know i, I want to ask like do you think that this is even a real thing is it really possible or does it maybe ignore how diverse societies and groups of people can be different things that people might be feeling Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Um, Well, I suppose anything that's speaking for or about a group is going to be generalized, you know, by some degree of necessity. And it might depend, too, on how diverse the makeup of the group that you're referring to is. I mean, I have heard that societies have different dimensions of um, culture to them that one of them is about expressiveness, for example. So that in itself to me seems like a an orientation that's collective. And there's also the thing about emotions like in sort of mass. I don't know. I think there's one expression I've heard, emotional contagion. Is that right?
0: Um, emotional contagion,
1: I Contagion, think. Um, okay. Yeah,
0: I actually did... Um I think the first episode of this podcast about emotional contagion, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because I was wanting to mention that. I think this idea relates to emotional contagion because it's like when emotional contagion goes beyond just spreading between a couple people to where a lot of people are all kind of infecting each other with the same emotion. And actually... I will go ahead and go a little bit more in-depth on what uh, Yaromovich and Bartal define collective emotional orientation as. So they describe it as going beyond the individual, again, and when a specific emotion is shared through biological, psychological, and social processes. And the so the biological, um, we've actually already talked about this like in the first episode um, in the series, this mini batch about fear, um, people pick up on each other's cues nonverbally, and there's things that we associate with danger, and they might start feeling more aroused or more relaxed, aroused in the sense of nervous system arousal, like amped up or not, and that's all happening on a biological level, so it's one way that emotions get shared. And then through the, the social level is like through media, which includes both nonfiction, like news and the way that news is reported, but also um, fictional media shows and books and everything that we consume for entertainment. Like, what is the emotional tone of those things? I think they argue that in a society that has it one predominant emotion, that a lot of that will all, a lot of the stories that are told will reflect that same emotion. And that also there's other places where it might be conveyed like even in classrooms and at work and then they say psychological which i'm not entirely sure how that differs from the biological because i'm thinking that's based in the biological processes of how our nervous systems react to situations but do you have any thoughts on like what that might be like how emotions could be shared at a psychological level
1: um well it is kind of a a broad topic and defining the term sometimes might help narrow some of it down. But um, my first thought was that psychological might involve cognition, you know, um, beliefs, and mm-hmm. and how that might influence people's reactions to each other's emotional state and their interpretations. And then things can kind of build off of that. So that's just...
0: Mm-hmm. No, that, totally one thing that comes to
1: mind. makes sense because I remember
0: um, they were writing in this article about, yeah, those different levels and how the biological process of like just your nervous system reacting and going into fight or flight is one thing, but that is going to interact with your beliefs and the way that you perceive different cues and what you um, associate with like words and symbols. Like if you see a certain word or a certain symbol and that's associated with something that you think is dangerous, then that'll set off that process of fear, and then that's gonna be related to the social level of like media and what we're told or what we share with each other about different ideas and symbols and what they mean. Mm-hmm. So it's all gonna like just reinforce each other. So in this podcast, I'm you know focusing especially just season one on the Chico community and our local political situation which I know you have some exposure to, especially with issues related to your job and also just in general. Do you think that Chico has a collective emotional orientation as a community?
1: Um. Again, I suppose it's depending on how you define the community, since it seems to vary depending on the social location of some of the people. By that, I mm-hmm. guess I mean, like, their socioeconomic situation, um, their maybe education and cultural background and so on. And um, oh, there was something else, too, about that. But um, Well, that that totally makes sense, though. You know, like, people in Chico who
0: are in different, like, income brackets might be having a totally different experience. Although, and let me know if you think of the other thought you had. Mm. Um, but I wonder... If it's really that different, because I'm thinking about like the people who are like homeless, because this is a really controversial issue. You know, there was just um, a judge filed an injunction yesterday or ordered an injunction yesterday against doing sweeps of homeless encampments or, you know, ordering people to leave. And this is just a really big issue in the community right now. And I'm thinking, even though people are having a different experience, maybe they are feeling the same emotion because if you're homeless, you might be feeling scared of not having anywhere to go or not having your basic needs met. But then the people who, you know, are supporting these sweeps and, you know, voted for the city councilors who are ordering these sweeps are also feeling afraid. And they have fears about, uh, you know, I mean, all sorts of things, decreasing property values, needles in parks, uh, you know, fears about being attacked by somebody, uh, who might be on drugs or having a mental health episode, whatever the case may be, I'm like, even though their experiences are different, they're like, might be both feeling fear.
1: Um, yes. And um, I don't know with the other variables, if that changes the reactions to the fear so that then there's a lot of anger sometimes that shows up as well, or um, hostility and then there's also groups of people who are opposed to the sweeps who are not homeless themselves or otherwise um, as vulnerable. And so I don't know if fear is as predominant, but there's an amount of agitation and um, anger and pain. So mm-hmm. there does seem to be a good amount of pain being expressed in different ways, but coming maybe from different, different stimuli.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, I would say that I also have that sense of like there's
1: agitation just generally in the community. Yes, um, and the tricky thing for me is like I don't get out of Chico much these days, especially with COVID and all that. I don't, so I don't have as much of a sense of comparison. Like, if I were to go to a city in another state, for example, would it feel different? Or especially if it had different, you know, features to it, different demographics, etc. But um, as far as I can tell from just the media and social media, there seems to be more reactivity kind of um, being put into words online in communication with people with each other. And so there's a sense of reactivity that I've been experiencing for quite a while now, especially since the Trump administration came in and out. It just seems to be ongoing, higher level of reactivity than I've noticed before in the public sphere, and that that is reflected in Chico Mm. as part of it.
0: Yeah, that definitely matches what um, these conflict researchers are arguing happens in societies where there's intractable conflict. Is Mm. that? I mean, they use the word fear, but Mm -hmm. I think that's very related to reactivity. fear is often a reactive automatic emotion um -hmm. and but you were kind of getting at this isn't necessarily unique to chico this could be happening like similar emotions in other communities and i'm guessing i don't know if you specifically said this but i'm guessing you were kind of alluding to a similar sense of not just local news but like national news like just yeah people being reactive
1: yes um I see it a lot in the form of judgments and and name-calling when it comes to online communication. And really, that's a lot of what I'm aware of, how I'm aware of what's going on in the community is by the media, you know, by reading the news. And um, it's confirmed sometimes by hearing from other people, like, oh, did you hear the news about this? You know, so it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not all completely impersonal. But there is that sense of um, people are quick to jump to, and that's what I mean by reactivity to like, they have a reaction and they speak from it and they act from it. And um, I don't know if there's a difference among some people, if they are more rigid in their way of holding on to their opinion or, and that that perpetuates the feeling and then the feeling perpetuates the the opinion. Like um, these homeless people aren't, you know, doing their share in society so they should just go away um, as opposed to um, these homeless people are, or these people are unhoused through no fault of their own and they're suffering and they're struggling and they need help not to be criminalized and so that might bring up different emotions that come and go so I don't know what else goes on that perpetuates emotions but um, even if they're coming from different places I wonder if when these people encounter each other whether it does kind of perpetuate the collective emotional orientation somehow like if all of the different sources feed into it to keep it going
0: yeah like for sources i'm imagining conversations that happen at city council meetings and then so you got that as a center of communication and then there's news reporting on that and then people interacting on social media on the news reporting like commenting on those reports and then that in turn loops back around to how people show up and engage with local politics and then you were also mentioning like not just online but also talking to people in person and them saying oh did you read about this so even in-person interactions are lining up with like the same topics that are being commonly discussed online is that what you're Uh, getting out there
1: yeah and partly how I might have any sense of the collective emotional orientation in this community is by reading stuff and it's not just hearsay if I also hear about it from other sources besides the media that I read for example yeah like a live conversation with someone who has feelings about the issue yeah Or even how, like, what my agency might do in response to some of the issues if it's relevant to the agency's purpose. You know, because they might make a decision to do something with a program or how clients are served. And then um, the staff might have feelings and opinions about that. And it creates um, a culture within the organization. Mm -hmm.
0: So, like, a collective emotional orientation within the the organization. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of existing within the larger context of the city or the county
1: yes especially because they tend to impact each other in certain ways
0: oh yeah um and i i was kind of just wanting to loop back around to what you said earlier about depending on people's i don't know what word you use like socioeconomic status or Mm -hmm. whatever that they might be having a different experience Do you think that there are people in our Chico community that are just totally having a different experience, like, not feeling agitated about these topics that some of us are really plugged into, like homelessness or um, whatever the issue may be? Like, are there people that are just on a different wavelength?
1: (laughs) Um, I suspect that there are. It's a little bit harder to say than it might have been since COVID in particular has um, made it so that... I'm not as exposed to as many different kinds of people or groups of people that like I'm thinking of when there was more social connection happening and I could say, oh yeah, you know, the people that I know that go to the drum and dance thing, for example, they just seem to be more, um, you know, caught up in their subculture and, um, enjoying that. And they're not feeling fearful or stressed or reactive, um, as much of the time, for example, because they're not thinking about the issues, um, but I don't have that observation to make at this point because of being less exposed. And also because a lot of these issues are impacting each other. Like COVID has um, put more pressure on the the housing and sheltering situation. So that affects more people and more people are aware of it as a result.
0: Yeah, like maybe the pandemic has broken down some walls between different groups and different experiences that people are having?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've heard the, the cliche, we're all in this together. And then, you know, the response, no, we're not, you know, we might be in the same situation, but we're affected differently due to our resources, etc. Yeah. Um, so I think to some extent, it has changed the amount of exposure that people have had to the issues, but it might affect them differently.
0: Do you have anything specific in mind that you're thinking of of like without naming any names but um anyone you know in Chico who's been, you know, affected in a certain way and maybe another person who's been affected in a
1: really different way. Well, first thing that comes to mind is um you know, somebody who doesn't have like say somebody who's unsheltered and they're trying to get on their feet by connecting to certain services, but those services are limited by um, COVID. And so that person might be devastated in their situation and be a danger of, um, you know, deteriorating much more quickly than they might otherwise in their life. and Or their mental health might be so affected that they can't really do anything for themselves. And that makes it harder for them to get on their feet And then you might have, you know, somebody working at a professional job with benefits who is struggling because of all the collective stressors that are generally in society. And maybe there's emotional impact at home. Maybe they have kids who have been struggling or are staying at home or not and all of those things. So it's not that they're lacking in the stress But it's affecting them differently in terms of the implications of what happens to them. Like, they'll probably survive better. Yeah, I know that I've been really fortunate to have
0: not been as negatively impacted, at least financially, um, by the pandemic myself. And that is really different from the ways that some people have been affected.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was just trying to think, because there's so many ways that people can be affected that are so variable some are overlapping some aren't so it's hard to kind of be concise about it
0: yeah and then we're not even talking about people who actually contracted covid or like lost family members Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and and that's gonna change based on your resources of health insurance and savings and what role that person plays in your family if they get sick or pass away
1: Yeah, and I will add that all of these things um, affect people's resilience in general, like all of these stressors, so then they're more likely to respond in a more survival mode, say, you know, like more fearfully and Mm -hmm. um, more protectively of their own resources and less likely to be able to feel as compassionate towards those who are less fortunate, who are needing something or asking them for something.
0: Yeah, I, I think, like how I'm thinking about it now is just I think it's just really hitting me like how much all of our individual experiences can have a butterfly effect on each other Mm -hmm. and we're talking about this again at the individual level and yet it's like when I go to the store every single person in that store myself included is having their own experience on the ways that we are impacted by the pandemic by our relationship with housing and money and family members and everything else. And then we do affect each other. Like, that's the collective emotional orientation. Like, what we've talked about on the podcast before and, like, what we were talking about earlier of, like, the biological level of even just we pick up on each other's cues all the time. Like, just the expressions on people's faces and their body language and tone of voice or anything and in ways that we don't even realize consciously Mm -hmm. um it's like we're all relaying these signals between each other of how we're feeling and sort of swimming in different emotions
1: Mm. so you're talking kind of about the um subconscious sort of um cues and reinforcement of emotional states that are occurring even without anyone having direct interactions with each other
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Even just, you know, passing someone on the street or in the store Mm
1: -hmm. and that we're
0: all, you know, dealing with our various collective and personal crises. And, but what does it do? Like, what effect do you think it has to become aware of that? To think of it as, you know, I I know what you mean. Like we're all in this together can become really cliche and can maybe be a bit flattening, Mm -hmm. um, or really flattening perhaps, (laughs) but is there any benefit to becoming more aware of how our experiences are all intertwined with each other as a community?
1: Well, I think there's always benefit to being aware of what the environment is, um, like what effect it's having on, on oneself and um, how that might influence our perceptions of reality. It might influence how we feel emotionally and to understand what that might be about, I think is helpful, especially if it's a difficult emotion like fear or hostility or that kind of thing. Um, Because if you're aware of your emotions and what the source of them is, you're more likely to be able to respond effectively, for one thing, or to take responsibility for your actions.
0: Yeah. I'm just thinking it feels like um, a lot of the topics that I've been exploring with different guests and on my own on this podcast, I feel like they can be a double-edged sword. Like, it could be used positively for more compassion and understanding, or negatively. Like, I'm thinking that if I am more aware of collective emotions, and I'm like, oh, a lot of people in my community are really agitated right now, I could interpret that or apply it positively to have more compassion for all of us. Like, we're all just, you know, we're struggling, we're on edge, and if someone snaps at me, it's like, okay, it's not about me, like, we're all just having a hard time. But it could be, I could see it being applied in a way that I don't know if it would be healthy, of just saying, like, I'm picking up on everyone else's bad vibes and just, like, blaming others for having bad vibes.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you mean, like, that if somebody got wind of this theory of collective emotional orientation, it might not be productive because they might apply it in a way that is unhelpful or could even lead to more problems in the community with them.
0: Yeah. And it's it's kind of ironic or meta because it's like if the idea or the concept itself is being understood in the context of a lot of agitation and reactivity, then mm-hmm. it can be interpreted and applied in a reactive way Mm -hmm. (laughs) like Mm -hmm. so that's why uh the good news is that on the next episode we're going to be talking about some possible solutions like a way out of this trap and hopefully that will be helpful and give us some inspiration and ideas for how to move forward when it kind of feels like we're getting trapped on all sides Mm -hmm. um but for now i just i hope that this does evoke some more compassion for ourselves and others in our community you know not just like a another complaint of like oh everyone's just in such a bad mood although if that's how you're feeling like i want to empathize with that too do you have any final thoughts on this topic lauren
1: um well i'm looking forward to hearing what comes out of this as far as um, possible solutions or ways to to address it um, you know, overall I think I've I've experienced that it's helpful to be able to identify what is um contributing to how we feel. You know, for a lot of people it's a relief when I say something like, Well, you know, don't forget you're in the middle of this situation where there's a lot of stress overall. Um, you know, and a lot of people are are feeling that and so it's affecting all of the things you're exposed to and you know, when people mm-hmm. kind of get that, it helps them not take as personally their own level of dysfunction that they're dealing with.
0: Like, people really want to feel like they're not alone or like, oh, that's not like there's something wrong with me. This is normal.
1: Yeah, I think it's often a relief to recognize it's not about, like, it's not inevitable. Like, who I am, if I'm feeling kind of, say, edgy or agitated when, like, and I can't shake it or something. And then it's like, well, it's kind of, there's so many influences happening now. And it's not to dismiss that if somebody's going to take a victim stance or a blaming stance or something, that they might need some help getting out of that, if that's even possible, regardless of what information they use with it. Like, oh, it's not my fault, it's society, you know, kind of thing. And it's like, well, Yes, society, and, um, you know, how can we have a way to approach this that is the most compassionate, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, like how can we recognize the social situation that we're in and still have individual empowerment? Yes, exactly. Because we're still also going through lives as individuals.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Well, thank you for being on the podcast today. Um, I want to remind everyone that currently I am undertaking this endeavor as part of a research project for my master's program, and I'm looking for reactions and responses to the podcast. I would love to hear from you. You can email me at dialogdilemmas@gmail.com, at gmail.com or find my website, dialogdilemmas.com. recently updated with its own URL, not some weird, uh, you know, Wix site URL. And you can also find me on Facebook, Dialogue Dilemmas. Twitter is Dialogue Dilemma, no S, due to a character limit. And I'm also now on Reddit, Dialogue Dilemma Pod. Um, Not so active there yet, hopefully soon. And I really like that uh, platform because it lends itself to more long-form, text-based communication. You don't have to always simplify everything down into really short sound bites. And so then you can have more nuance, kind of like how Facebook used to be when it was really text-based. And on my uh, Facebook and Twitter accounts, you will see the informed consent notice about if you post or comment there, your comments may be used anonymously for uh, research for my graduate work. And I really appreciate that. Uh, It will be anonymous and you can find all the information details there. Or if you would like to give me feedback that wouldn't be used for research, but just talk to me, you can always uh, email me or private message me on those platforms as well. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Thank you.